God is too holy to look upon sin. The idea here is that God is so holy and righteous and that he cannot tolerate the sight of evil men and therefore separates himself from their presence. This God requires the demands of his law to be met before his anger towards the sinner can be appeased. According to John Calvin, God is, quote, a just judge who cannot permit his law to be violated with impurity, but is armed with vengeance, end of quote. Therefore, forgiveness can occur only after judgment has been meted out. While God may show love, in this view, God is somehow bound under law himself. He cannot simply forgive until the demands of justice have been executed. In my previous episode, I suggested that it's possible that our modern view of the atonement, particularly within the evangelical faith, presents several problems when examined against Scripture, as well as the writings of early church fathers. This view that God cannot look upon sin is one such problem. Where does this understanding come from? In Habakkuk chapter 1, there is a verse that is often used to create fear and distance between God and the unrighteous. This verse is often lifted out of its context and not read in its entirety. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. On its own, it seems straightforward that the prophet is describing God to be one who is incapable of even looking upon the sin of mankind. It's very easy to lift one portion of text in favor of a particular view of God to support one's doctrine. The problem? This neglects the context of the passage in Habakkuk. Here is the verse in its entirety. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? And why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? The prophet here is seeing destruction and violence all around him and crying out to God with expressions of anger and even confusion about God's apparent inconsistency in what the prophet sees as justified retribution toward his foes. He cries out to God, Your eyes are too pure to even look upon the sin of evildoers. So why do you? Why do you look upon the wicked with favor? In the mind of Habakkuk, God's response to his people was not lining up with his own theology. Habakkuk is the one with the perception problem, not God. In the Garden of Eden, God warned Adam of the consequences of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. His disobedience resulted in fear and shame. Adam fled from the presence of God, hiding amongst the trees. God responds in active pursuit of his creation. Adam, where are you? Adam's sense of guilt and shame led to futile thinking and resulted in the fear of God's presence. Adam now lacked the boldness to approach God the way he once had. The Apostle Paul refers to the Gentiles, who he says, In the futility of their minds, they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ephesians 4.18 he goes on to say in Colossians 1.21, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. How does God respond to Adam who is distancing himself from his creator in fear? 
God provides a solution in the form of animal skins. Again, who needed the covering? Did God need Adam to be covered before he could approach him? No, it was Adam who was the beneficiary of the covering as a way to restore a sense of confidence once again to come out of hiding and approach the living God. The writer of Hebrews says, How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Hebrews 9.14 Notice here again, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience so that we can come out of hiding. This blood was not to appease an angry God like a pagan deity. It was to restore our alienated minds which were hostile to God and liberate us from the bondage of sin and death to serve the living God. God sends Adam and Eve away from the garden, but he is still in active pursuit. In the very next chapter, Genesis 4, God puts a mark of protection on the first murderer in Scripture. Is God okay with sin and disobedience? Of course not. Sin hinders our relationship with God producing fear and shame. Sin is destructive and carries its own consequences. Notice that it is man that becomes alienated enemies in our own minds through wicked works. In our futile thinking, we begin viewing God as our enemy. God is not allergic to sin. He is the cure. God embraced fallen man in the womb of a woman. Matthew one twenty three says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Consider here a comparison. Jonathan Edwards, concerning God's disposition towards fallen man, said this, quote, You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell, since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. He will not only hate you, but he will have you in the utmost contempt. No place shall be thought fit for you, but under his feet to be trodden down as the mire of the streets. End of quote. Compare this to how Jesus spoke of those he came to save. He was sent to the sick in need of a physician. He was sent to the lost sheep who are sick. He said he came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favor of the Lord. His work was likened to a shepherd who leaves ninety-nine righteous sheep in search of the one who has wandered astray, or a woman who has ten coins, loses one, and lights a lamp, searching until she finds it. Or a son who squandered his father's inheritance, realizes his folly and returns to a father, only interested in celebrating the return of his son with a feast, a robe, a ring, and sandals. God's very nature is and always has been to love his enemies and even bless those who curse him. We may have concluded this was not the case, but Jesus affirms that by loving our enemies, we are exhibiting the very nature of our Father in heaven, who, according to Jesus, makes his Son rise on the evil and the good, and his reign to fall on the just as well as the unjust. The death of Jesus didn't change God's mind about man. The New Testament affirms we are the ones who need to repent, change our thinking about God. 
It does not affirm that God needs to repent and change his thinking about us. Jesus reveals the Father's character as love, and this he reveals prior to Calvary. According to Scripture, in the body of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If God can't look upon the sinner, there would seem to be tension created within the Trinity. Jesus, who we affirm as fully God, is accused of being a drunkard and a friend of sinners. We cannot divorce our interpretation of God's method of approaching sinners from the method Jesus, in whom the fullness of God dwelt, approached sin. Why? Let's look at this statement by Jesus in John's Gospel. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John five nineteen through 22 Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John 14, 6 and 7. This is a clear reference here by Jesus that it is only through him that we know the Father. The point here is clear. They did not previously know the full nature and the character of the Father that now has been fully revealed in Jesus. Now that Jesus has come and revealed the fullness of God and His character, we can see that God is not running from our brokenness and failures. He enters into it, shining light in our darkness, and is leading us out. I'll end with a quote from Athanasius of Alexandria. As then the creatures whom He had created were on the road to ruin, what then was God being good to do? It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption, because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself.